precious as this world can offer you. Now, we may want something that is otherwise good. We may want something that we think we need. But God knows the heart, and this is why we need the scriptures. The, the scriptures is that faithful mirror that reveals our own sinful desires. Now, as we read this passage, you know, it's a, it's a tough time for Israel, tough time to see their heart so against the Lord here. But let these scriptures cut into your own heart. Let these scriptures reveal where those idols are and, and place your full trust in Christ. Israel needed to realize that what they are asking is to go contrary to what God, des what God desires for them. So God responds to Israel, and he gives Israel a stern warning. Which brings us to our next part of the story, verses 9 and 10. Let's read that really quick. Now then, this is God speaking to Samuel, now then listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him of, who had asked of him a king. Okay, so Samuel goes back to the people. Now remember Samuel, when Samuel speaks, right, the Lord lets none of his words fail, right? We saw that in chapter th uh, from chapter 3. Uh, and so Samuel is speaking to this people, and the people know he's representing the Lord, right? So when we, later on when we see that rejection, it's not re just a rejection of Samuel. People know uh, who Samuel is speaking for. It comes down to rejection of God. So Samuel gives Israel a stern warning. He knows the king they want. He knows that they want a king like all the other nations. But this is not the king that God would have for them. Okay, so I want to spend a little time in Deuteronomy 17 here. So flip back to Deuteronomy 17, and I want you to read what God wants for them, what God wants for Israel as a king. And it's not going to be like the description Samuel gives. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me. Now, when we read in 1 Samuel, like all the nations, that was way more emphatic in 1 Samuel than it is here. Verse 15. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from whom your, your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way, he shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away. Now, we certainly see that throughout Israel's history, don't we? Right, with David, Solomon. I mean, how many wives does Solomon have? Not what God had, not what God desired for them. Nor shall he greatly increase in silver and gold for himself. Now, what is he supposed to do? Now, it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted above his countrymen and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the left or to the right so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So we look at that passage in Deuteronomy 17 and see God did want a king for them. 
And that king is going to be a man of God, a man of the word. He wasn't supposed to take horses for himself, not wives for himself. He's not going to take gold and silver for himself. He was supposed to be a, a man who trusts the Lord and leads his people into spiritual well-being. And notice what's missing in Deuteronomy 17. Do we talk about wars there? Is there any mention of wars? No. Wars was not the priority. The people's hearts were. But the people, now back in 1 Samuel 8, they want a man, they want a king who could lead them into wars. And so Samuel says, okay, you want a king that lead you into wars? Here it is. Here's a king. And just look at verses 11 through 17. How many times do you see the word take? He will take your sons. Israel, you want an army? Where does that army come from? Army comes from your sons. They're gonna, he's going to recruit your sons. He's going to require your sons to be in the army. You, you want an army? You need, that army needs to eat. He's going to take your daughters. You're going to be perfumers, perfumers, cooks, bakers. He's going to take your land. He's going he's to take your servants and his donkeys and use it for, for his own work. And worst of all, he's going to be a dictator. You yourselves will become his servants. He will rule over you, and this is the kind of king you want. That's not the worst part of it, though. Verse 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You know, you think about judges. Even in judges, Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord answered them. He's saying, if you continue with this attitude, if you continue with this motivation to be like all the other nations, Yahweh will not answer them. Now, if Samuel was trying to scare them, I don't think it worked. Uh, they didn't care of the cost. Um, have you ever tried to get a kid not to eat candy and say, like, hey, you eat that candy, your teeth are going to be bad. Uh, I don't know, and then you offer them candy right after that. I don't think that's really going to intimidate them. Right? I think they're just going to, yeah, give me that candy anyway. I'm good. Because that's what they want. Right? They'll, they'll go pretty much at any cost for, for candy. And we see the same thing with, 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 uh, with the people here. Samuel says, hey, you want this king? This is how it looks like. This is what it costs. And look at the response. Verse 19 there. Nevertheless, the people refuse to listen to the voice of Samuel. They don't care what Samuel's saying. They know what they want. He, what he's not saying is, I'll give you a king. And that's all they're listening out for. If people refuse to listen to Samuel and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. Have you ever um, been in an argument with somebody and, and you know they're making valid points? Like, yes, that is a valid point. But the problem with that, your point there is that it goes against what I want. So therefore, invalid. Right? I, I feel like I, I come across that uh, quite a bit in my own life. Um, me as the, the one who's saying I don't like your points. Um, a little while ago, Danielle and I were discussing uh, how when I come home from work, how I just want to you know, rest. And, and you know, there's a lot of things that have to be done when I get home. There has to be dinner. I've got to bathe the kids. Um, there's just a lot of work that needs to be done. I can't just go in there and sit down. But selfishly, what I wanted to do is just that. I want to go home, sit down, uh, eat, be with my family, and, and no housework included. So Danielle lovingly comes, comes up to me and says, you know, I really would like you to help me around the house, help me get ready for dinner. She said, you know, it sounds like a reasonable request. But to me, 
That was shots fired. <laughs> that, that loving remark was a missile bound to my idol. How dare she? <laughs> and, and all that I could think about was that she was going after me. I would, and this is how you know you're dealing with an idol, that you're not willing to look at it from another perspective, right? You're, you're going to do what you want to get that idol. It's what the idol demands of you. I wasn't willing to consider her day. I wasn't willing to consider how good it would be for our family to get together and to serve one another. I was very much like Israel. No, I will have my rest. And this is what idols do to us. Idols, they make it hard to reason with us, right? If we're following an idol, if we're worshiping that idol, they make us immune to wisdom. And when we set up an idol in place of God, logic and reason, those things take a back seat. And we're willing to sacrifice anything on the altar of that idol. This is exactly what we see with Israel. They refuse to listen to Samuel because they are they are set of what they want. They're going to do it no matter what cost. Even if that means God's not going to respond to their prayers later. They didn't want to listen to that. It's not a king, so I'm not interested. Even more scary, though, look at their reasoning here. Verse 19, they refuse to listen to Samuel's stern warning. They say, no, there shall be a king over us. And they say, here's a reason, that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And again, the, the, the Hebrew here is emphatic. They also want to be like them. They too want to be like the nations. And what did they want that king to do? They didn't want the king to do anything bad, uh, right? In verse 20, they wanted the king to judge them, to rule over them, to put order. Uh, they wanted the, the king to, to lead them in battles. Right? There's nothing wrong with, with having order and security. Right, those, are, those are good things. Those are needed things. But instead of trusting God for that, instead of saying, God, I, this is what I want, but I know you will deliver because I know your character and I know you're good, they say, God, I want to provide this on my own. I think I know a better way. And it doesn't involve you ruling over us. Over us. It involves someone else ruling. And they look around to the world for those solutions. They don't look to God for solutions. They look to what's going on in the nations around them and say, we should do that. And I'm very, this is very much like us. You know, we, as believers, we are to live antithetically to the world, right? Uh, as living like the world, um, oh, let me say it this way, the way we live baffles unbelievers. Right? There's a lot of things we do differently. The way we view marriage, completely strange to an unbeliever. The way we rejoice, the way we mourn, the way we use our words, all that is very, very different. But in living in the world, we are tempted to conform ourselves to the world, especially when there is a benefit or need there. And I'd and like to put it this way. We are tempted to conform ourselves to the world when it best serves our idols. Right? That's when you want to conform yourself. When, when your idol demands it of you, and you're, you have that idol in the place where God should be, you will gladly conform yourself to the world. Think about all those empty promises that these idols offer. You know, we hear that, you know, may living like the world could give you a promotion at work. Living like the world may ease tension with family, with unbelievers. May living like the world, it could bring you monetary gain. It promises an ease of worldly living. 
You can, you can have an easy life if you just live like the world. But at what cost there? The cost to live like the world will be to reject your king. And you reject your, your eternal gain, the king to gain temporary relief in this life. And this is what Israel's choosing right now. This is what he, they're doing in this, in this chapter. They're choosing for themselves this temporary relief. They're content to be without God and content to be with a worldly king. It's a scary place to be. But what's scarier than that, what's scarier than actually wanting that, is that God actually gives them that. Look at this. So we saw Israel's idolatrous, idolatrous rejection. We saw Samuel's stern warning. And the last part of this chapter, we see God's sovereign answer. Look at verse 21. Now after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the, Lord, in, in the Lord's hearing. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Okay, so Samuel's probably shocked that that warning didn't work. He's like, okay, you still want a king. Go pray. So he goes, prays. And it's kind of like, like, Lord, I'm about to launch this nuclear weapon. My hand's right over the button. You say, yes, I'll do it, but just want to make sure because there's no turning back from this point. And so God tells him, yeah, do it. So Samuel returns to the people and says, all right, go back to your cities. You'll get your king. Stay posted. Now we know how this unfolds, right? If you're familiar with 1 Samuel and the, and the story of the Old Testament, we know how this unfolds. In the next few chapters, the next few chapters focus on a man named Saul. And, I mean, we can look at verse, chapter 9 just really quickly. Look at that description of Saul. There was this man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, uh, um, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zerar, the son of uh, Bekorath, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. And he had a son. So he comes from a really uh, wealthy family there. He had a son whose name was Saul. And look how it describes Saul. A choice and handsome man. There was not... There was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. And from his shoulders and up, he was taller than all the people. All right, you think of a king who could lead you into war, who could stand before your, your armies and horses and, and elephants. And this man, Saul, comes to mind. Right? Not only is he good looking, not only is he taller than everyone else and stands out, but he comes from a prominent family. So Israel gets Saul. This is a man that looks like the kings to all the other nations. This is a man that Israel thinks can meet their needs. And so God gives Israel what they asked for. But it does not turn out the way Israel wanted. This, this warrior king that they wanted, flip all the way to the end of 1 Samuel, Saul goes against the Philistines, where, where, God, had, where God previously had victory. Saul goes against them, and he loses, and he dies in battle. That's your king. Now, God's response to Israel should cause us to stop and consider how God responds to our prayers. Sometimes, when we pray for something, it is only by the mercy of God that he doesn't give us what he wants, or what we want. That he protects us from our own sinful desires of our heart. Yet, there are other times in his loving discipline that he does give us exactly what we want. But he only uses that to call us back. Right? He uses that to reveal that we are uh, just how entrenched we are with those idols rather than serving the, the God of the universe. 
I read, uh, well, we studied together in Family Bible Hour today. The psalmist says this in Psalm 119, Before I was afflicted, I was going astray, but now I keep your word. God may afflict you by giving you what you want, but his desire is not so that you would writhe in pain there. His desire is that you would see the emptiness of your idols, that you would repent and you would trust in him. Right, this is a warning we have from Israel, a warning of wanting things other than God. But what I love about 1 Samuel is what I started with. God is sovereign over these things. That in the end, that really does bring hope. Like all your bad choices, all your sinful choices that you made in the past, those sinful desires that you acted upon, those things do not confound God's plan. But our God is a redeemer. And he redeems those sinful choices you made for good. And we definitely see that throughout 1 Samuel. Right? We see that Israel rejected God for an idol, the idol of a king. We see Samuel's stern warning there, and it ended with God's sovereign answer to the people. King after king comes after this. Right? We saw Saul. He turns out to be a, a terrible king. After Saul, we had David. Not better, but still, he falls way short. Solomon comes after that, and king after king after king falls short of, what, of, of the kind of king that Israel actually needs. But we rejoice in that there, there does come a king. There comes a king who does not come to be served, but to serve. There comes a king who would empty himself, that he would become a servant and take upon himself our sins. And he would humble himself to death, even death on the cross. And this is a person of Jesus Christ. We look at Jesus Christ and see this is God's sovereign answer to, to Israel's prayers. This is the king that they need, and this is the king that we need. We see that in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we prepare to go uh, before the Lord's table this morning, I want to ask those of you, those of you who have placed your trust in Christ, examine your hearts even now. Hold or heed yourself to this warning in this passage. If there is anything demanding your trust over God, if there is anything that pulls your love away from him that's causing you to reject his will over your life, run away from it. Flee from it. Not, not so that you can be saved. We don't do this so that we can be saved. We run away from our idols because we are saved. We run away because we belong to God, that he is our king and we are his people. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, then I ask you that when we pass out these, the, the bread and the wine, that you let these elements pass by. These are only for believers. But I do want to leave you with a question. Why shouldn't Jesus be your king? He does not burden, but he gives rest, rest to the weary. He is not a harsh ruler, but we have a gentle shepherd. There, there are no works you need to do because he has done all the work for you. You just need to turn away from your idols and trust in Christ. And that's what we rejoice and that's what we proclaim as we come before God and, and take communion. Pray with me. Father, it is at times a harsh reality that we have to face that we are so prone to idols, that we are so desperate at times to look at at solutions other than what your, your, your scriptures have laid for us, to look at hope and trust outside of you. And Father, I pray that you would 
reveal in our own hearts where we are hanging on to those idols, where we have an, an idol of rest, an idol of money, an idol of relationships. Father, may you be our ultimate joy. May we find our complete satisfaction in your will. Father, as I pray that as we prepare to receive these elements, that you would prepare our hearts, that you would humble us before you, and that we could see our great King being hung on the cross, so that we might have eternal life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, well, as we prepare to take communion, let's uh, sing this plea together in uh, hearts of repentance. Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lonely heart. Own it all and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your hope. Our King is unlike 
any other king. Not only did God take on human flesh, not only did he live a perfect life for us, but he took our place. He bore our shame on the cross. And you should think about what a king would what king would do that? What king would sacrifice himself for his servants? What king would sacrifice himself for his enemies? This is exactly what our Lord Jesus did for us. And on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we take this bread, we remember that by his wounds, we are healed. Let's take it together. Same night, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup which is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. We have forgiveness in sin, or from sin. We have forgiveness of sin. We have eternal life with God, all because of Christ's sacrifice. All because our king would pay the ultimate price for us. We praise him for that. Let's remember that as we drink. Lord, we praise you, Jesus, as our eternal king, as one who sits on the throne forever. And Lord, it just, just humbles me to think that you endured such immense pain in taking our sins, that you took our punishment on the cross, yet gave us your righteousness. And now there's no condemnation for those who trust in your sacrifice. But not only that, Lord, not only that, you promise eternal life where, you will, where we will reign with you. What have we done to deserve such kindness? Why should we be your fellow heirs? Surely it's not because of what we've done, but it's all because it is an outpouring of your love, an outpouring of your grace on your servants. Father, we praise you and we look forward to the day when every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that you are Lord when there are no idols competing for our affections and all be directed towards you. Father, I pray that you would help us proclaim your name as we continue to trust solely in you and as we continue to serve you with with our whole hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's together uh, end the service and stand and sing of the incredible love and the incredible work of our incredible King. With the hands that formed the world, you washed our feet. Kneeling down, you laid aside your majesty. And you said for us to go and do the same. So we serve for the glory of our King. You left heaven's throne to rescue what was
the King stand in awe of your incredible affection for us and your incredible work. Uh, May we never grow complacent, uh, never grow uh, satisfied in times when things are stable. Let us always uh, seek to love you more, uh, seek to live in obedience from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, have a great rest of your Sunday. We'll see you on Wednesday at the Cockins.